Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome once again to our Sunday morning uh, Bible study. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is The Good Life. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through uh, 12. I'm taking my title this morning from a passage. It actually comes out of verse 10, uh, where Peter says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days. And so I just kind of put those two together and I'm calling it the good life. Now, when we talk about the good life, I, I mean, let's be honest, everybody would like to live the good life. But what does that actually mean? When I, when I say that phrase, the good life, what do you, what do you think of? Well, most people would probably come up with some vision of glamorous people and glamorous places, uh, with, with glamorous toys. Because the, the fact of the matter is, in our culture, uh, that's what the good life tends to mean. It's all about chasing stuff or, or, or gathering things or getting things, uh, houses, land, uh, cars, clothes, uh, uh, beautiful body. The list just goes on and on. But if we're honest, we all know that's not really the good life. Uh, those people that have those things and go to those places and, and they're not any happier on average than people in Sopchapi or Tallahassee or Crawfordville or, or any other place. And, and the reason is, is because we all know those things don't satisfy the heart. The wisest man that ever lived was King Solomon. And, uh, we know from the Bible, not only was he wise, he had a, a ton of money. Uh, he was the king of his own country, so he could basically do anything he wanted to do. And while he was king, there was a time of peace over the kingdom, so he didn't have to worry himself with with wars or defending the kingdom or anything like that. And in First Ecclesiastes chapter two verse ten, it says this: "And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them; I kept my heart from no pleasure." So he had the power, he had the wealth, he had the time. And whatever he wanted, whether it was women or exotic animals or, or whatever it was, he would just take those things. And so, after a while, you would think, okay, well, did he live the good life? Was he, was he happy? Uh, and in verse 17 of that same chapter, it says this, I hated life. He actually hated his life because he began to understand, because he was a smart man and a wise man, he began to understand that none of those things brought any type of satisfaction. No, none of those things uh, bought, brought any kind of lasting uh, contentment. So, you know, I think it would be safe to say that very few people in the world today are living uh, the good life. Very few people are content, fulfilled, uh, happy. Very few people are really at um, peace. But what about Christians? Of all people, shouldn't we uh, be living the good life? Shouldn't we be content uh, with the gifts that God has given us, with the, with the lot in life that God has, has placed us with? But the truth of the matter is that for many Christians, you don't love life. You wish you did. You wish you could say that you're truly content, but the fact is you just uh, aren't. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment and before we get to our verses, and I want to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, Peter is writing to Christians. He's not writing to unbelievers. Uh, in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, he says, he, he says uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect or those who are 
chosen. So he's writing to Christians, and I think that's a incredibly important point. Um, so he's he's saying, hey, if you want to live the good life, do these things. And so here's something else, though, that's even more important. He's writing to suffering Christians. He's writing to Christians who are being grieved through various uh, trials. Now think about this. Here's a group of people who they're going through things that they don't want to go through. Uh, understandably, and it would be very understandable that they might not at that point be loving life. They might not at that point see their days as being particularly good. But Peter is saying to them, in spite of all that, in spite of the trials, you can still love life and you can still see good days. Now listen, if we just stop right there and didn't go any further, what that should tell us is that living the good life has absolutely nothing to do with what you have, and it also has nothing to do with what's happening to you uh, on the outside, and we'll get back to that later. Now, right before we get to the verses, I want to deal with something that kind of came up in my in my study that I began to think about, and I thought, you know, is this a contradiction? Um, in John twelve twenty five, Jesus said this, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. So so which is it? Do we hate our life, as Jesus said in, in John 12? Or do we love our life, as Peter says here in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3? Is this a contradiction? Well, it turns out it's not a contradiction at all. And the reason is, is because they're really talking about two different lives. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. If you look at what Jesus means by someone hating their life. What does that mean? Well, it could mean a lot of different things, but at the very least, at the very least, it's got to mean that you don't give much thought to your life uh, in this world. If men speak well of you or they lie about you, it really doesn't matter. If you've got a lot or if you've got a little, if you're famous or nobody knows your name, if you're persecuted or you're completely left alone, none of that stuff really matters to you. It's, it's got to mean at the least that. The point is, Jesus is saying, if you lose your life, lose the life that, that is centered around you, Lose this life that you're living where you're the center of the universe. It's all built on your dreams and your desires. Jesus said if you lose that life, then in Matthew chapter 10 it says you will find it. Now here's the thing. You see, it's only in losing that life, that self-life, that you really find this other life that's built around Jesus Christ. I want to give you a little Greek lesson, if I can, moving ahead. There are two words in the Greek for life. The, the first one is the most well-known. This one's called bios, and this is where we get the word biology, or the study of life. Um, bios really just means the, the, the technical aspects of life. Life versus death, or living versus is dying. It really uh, doesn't go much further than that. But there's another word. Uh, in the Greek called zoe, which is the word that Peter uses here. And zoe doesn't just mean the technical aspects of life. It has to do with the experience and the richness or the fullness of life. See, that's what Peter's talking about. Peter is talking about a life that's meaningful, 
a life that's rich, a life that's productive, a life that's satisfying. You see, that's a life that's only found in Jesus Christ. And that is a life not only worth finding, that is a life worth loving. Now, with that said, let's come to our verses. 1 Peter 3.8 Finally, Peter says, All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, he begins with the word finally. Now, what I want you to understand here is this is the last part of a discussion that he actually began back in chapter 2, verse 11. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we've been talking a lot about Christian relationships, how Christians relate to their government, how Christians relate to their employers, how Christians relate to their spouses. And we've spent several uh, weeks on that. And now from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way up to chapter 3, verse 8, here he is in this last section, and he's summing it all up. And he says, finally, all of you. So he's not just talking now to Christian citizens. He's not just talking to Christian employees. He's not just talking to Christian wives or Christian husbands. He's saying all of you. He's summing it all up. And he's talking about all relationships. He's going to give us some some things that, that we need to take into account with every relationship that we have. So basically what he's saying here is, do you want to live the good life? Well, if you do, then this is what you need to do. Now, the first thing he tells us about living the good life is that if, if that's what you want, then you need to be a certain kind of person or we need to be a certain kind of people. Now, now this is so important because he's not just going to call, call us out and say, hey, I want you to do this, this checklist of, of things. Uh, he'll get to that in a minute. But he's saying before you can do that, you've got to be a certain kind of person on the inside. Now, let me say, the kind of person that he's going to ask us to be, let me just tell you, it's impossible. You cannot do it on your own. It's impossible without regeneration or the new birth. It's impossible without having a new heart. It's impossible without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, he's going to give us five characteristics of this person. Uh, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. And I want to go through each of these, and I'm just going to spend a little bit of time on each one. The first one, he says, is this kind of person you need to be is a person who has unity of mind. Now, the Greek phrase here is homophrones. Homo means same, and phrones means thinking. In other words, you need to be a people who thinks the same, that you have unity of mind. Now, let me say this. He does not mean that we all have to have the same taste. We don't all have to like the same kind of clothes and listen to the same kind of music and enjoy the same kind of, of preaching. That's not what he's talking about uh, whatsoever. Um, what he's talking about is the essentials of life. Thinking about God, how, what do you think about salvation? What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Christian virtues? Things like that. That's what he's talking about. We can have different tastes and different habits and things like that. That's fine. But when it comes to what we think about God and about Jesus and about uh, the Bible, we need to have the same mind or unity of mind. Romans 15.5, Paul says it this way, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you 
to be like-minded toward one another. That's that same phrase, same-minded or unity of mind. But watch what he says, according to Christ Jesus. See, the thing is, he's saying, it's not about taste, it's not about habits, it's not about those things. It's about how do you see Christ? How do you view Christ? When it comes to that, we all need to think the same way. The second uh, characteristics of this kind of person that you're called to be, if you want to live the good life, is you're called to be sympathetic. The, the Greek word here is some pathos. Some means together. Pathos means to suffer. We are to feel what others feel so that we can respond to their needs. Now, I want to say something here that we have to be careful for. Um, we've all heard throughout our life, somebody maybe comes up to us and says, I know how you feel. Let me tell you, people who are truly sympathetic with somebody, they don't say that. Because when you really know how someone feels, then you know how unhelpful it is to hear somebody say that. That, that, that adds nothing. In other words, true sympathy is not about your words. It's not about what you say. True sympathy is, is being there for someone. True sympathy is time-intensive and presence-intensive. In other words, you need to be there for them. And, and to be able to, at, to take your time to go out of your way and your wants and your desires to spend time with someone, that comes from the inside. That comes from a sympathy that's not made up. It's not hypocritical. It comes from something that's real when you're that kind of person. We need to be like our Lord. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. Jesus sympathizes and we should do uh, the same. One Scottish writer said this, Moses, the greater man than Aaron, was not called to be high priest. Why? Because he had grown up in the palace. He had never felt the lash of the taskmaster, the, the blast of the brick kilns, the raw-fingered agony of unrequited toll. He couldn't be touched with the feelings of their infirmities. But Aaron could. Because Aaron was there. He experienced all that. We made pity from above, but we can only sympathize from beside someone. The third thing that Peter brings out as a characteristic of this type of person who's going to live the good life is brotherly love. This comes from the word, of course, Philadelphia. Uh, Philos means loving friend, and Adelphos is a brother. In other words, what he's saying here is don't view each other in the church as just acquaintances. Don't, don't view each other as strangers and, and don't even view each other as, as long lost cousins or, or distant relatives. View each other as brothers and sisters. View each other as close family. You see, brothers and sisters, we disagree. Anybody that's ever grown up at home with brothers and sisters, we fuss and fight and do all that. But at the end of the day, we've got each other's back. Um, we, we move past those things, and that's how we should be as, as Christian brothers and sisters. The fourth thing, or fourth characteristics that Peter is, is calling out of this type of person who's going to live the good life is someone that's tender-hearted. This is a, an interesting Greek word. I don't know if I can say it. It's euspleinkanoi. It means kind-hearted. But the interesting thing about this is it comes from the root word splachnons, and it literally means your intestines or your bowels. The, the Greek translation here means to feel generous in your belly. Now, here's the interesting thing. 
this word all has to, all everything about this word has to do with your insides, not the outside. It has to do with the deepest place of your feelings and your emotions. See that what it's saying is what you feel about each other isn't hypocritical. It's not something you have to put on because you're the kind of person that feels this tender-heartedness, this kindness for for your brothers and sisters way down deep on the inside. The final thing that he brings up, of course, uh, of this type of person who, if you want to be to live the good life, is a humble mind. Uh, the word is tapanos, which means lowly, and friend, which means uh, mind. Now, of, of all the characteristics and traits of the Christian, this is the most, probably the most essential. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, there it is, that lowliness of mind, let each of you regard another as more important than himself. Man, can you imagine that? If we really did that, if people walked around seeing other people as more important than me. I mean, it would rock our families, it would rock our church, it would rock our, our, our world. But I want you to see the difference here. It, it, the, his point here is that you're not just to act the role of a servant. You're not just to be a servant. You're, on the outside, it's, it's, it becomes who you are. It, this idea of, 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 of on the inside with authenticity having a lowly spirit. Now, this is a person, by the way, who is utterly dependent on God. When you walk around and you've got this lowly spirit, you've got this humility, you're a person who's depending on God, but at the same time, you're self-aware. You're aware of your own sinfulness, but you know, man, I've received grace. And this should make us just wonderstruck. I mean, God loves me. God saved me. God died for me. How, how can that be? A person like that, humility just comes natural. They're not pushy and they're not um, assertive. So, do you want to love life? Do you want to see good days? You see, it's not. it doesn't start primarily with how we act. It starts with being a certain kind of person on the inside. Now, here's the thing, and we're going to see this in the rest of the passage. Actions do matter. But we want actions, God wants actions that are not hypocritical. He wants actions that pour forth from being a certain kind of person. Now, this leads us to the rest of the passage where Peter begins talking about having a right response. This is what he says. Remember our title, whoever desires to love life and see good days, then be this kind of person. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. Now listen, this is a very simple, very direct command. No matter how you're treated, don't retaliate. No matter how you're treated, don't return evil for evil. You might be persecuted. You might be distressed. You might be uh, uh, being treated incredibly unjust or unfairly. It doesn't matter. He said the right response is don't retaliate. But Peter goes even further. He says, don't just not retaliate with your actions. He said, don't even trade insult for insult. Or in other words, don't retaliate with your words or with your tongue. Now, you may be asking at this point, kind of like I did, well, what does this have to do with the good life? What does this really have to do with the good life? Well, just think about it for a moment. You've got this person who is being unkindly treated, right? Right? 
but yet they're able somehow through the power of the Spirit just to just to, it just goes off them like water off a, a duck's back. They have no vengeance. They have no hostility. Uh, they don't retaliate. There's no fuming. There's no raging anger. Their hearts are just quiet. Their hearts are at peace. Right? Now, you can see that's that kind of person is living the good life. They're not letting things on the outside affect them. But Peter, watch this. He doesn't just stop and say, don't retaliate with your actions or your tongue. No, as Christians, he's going to ask us to go the extra mile. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, I got to deal with a certain word here, and that is the word called. What is what is he saying that we're called to? There's two options here. You know, sometimes language can be a little uh, ambiguous. Um, you know, I remember uh, one time I answered an email and um, I, I said thanks, and and somebody thought I was being um, sarcastic, but I wasn't, right? I mean, sometimes you can read a word and, and it's ambiguous. Well, it's kind of that way here. Is he saying, on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called? Is he saying you were, you were called to bless those who insult you? Or is he saying, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing? In other words, you were called to bless others when you're insulted, or you were called to obtain a blessing? Which one is he is he talking about? Well, my answer is that we are called to bless those who insult us. In other words, this is how we're called to live. Now, why do I think that? Well, because this has a very close parallel with what we've already studied back in chapter 2. In verses 20 and 21, Peter said this, When you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, what? To, to do good and suffer and take it patiently. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Right? So I think that's pretty clear. He's saying that's what, this is the type of life you've been called to live. When people treat you badly or people insult you, you bless them. You don't return evil for evil or insult for sin, insult. On the contrary, you bless. Now, how does the last part of verse 9 then fit in? Look what he says. On the contrary, bless, for this is to what you were called. And then he says this, that you may obtain a blessing. Now when he does that, he's showing us that our blessing others is a condition we fulfill so that we'll inherit our blessing in the age to come. Now, some of y'all immediately, if you've been around me for a while, are going to say, well, what did he just say? Or did you just say we have to earn our salvation? Well, of course I didn't say that. Peter, by the way, has already said our blessing is inherited, not earned. He said that back in 1 Peter uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. This statement is similar to numerous other statements in the Bible. Let me give you an example. Matthew 5, 7. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Or, or how about this from Luke six thirty seven? Judge not, and you won't be judged. Condemn not, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be Forgiven is Jesus saying that that those judging and condemning and forgiving are conditions of earning salvation? No, of course not. None of those are teaching that our future blessing is something we earn through works. 
they are teaching that those things are evidence of the new birth. For example, we've been spared judgment, therefore we don't judge others. We are not condemned, therefore we don't condemn others. We've been forgiven by Christ, therefore we forgive others. And what Peter's saying here is very similar. We have been blessed when we didn't deserve it. Therefore, we turn around and bless others when they don't deserve it. You see, this is the calling. This is the life to which we've been called. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. Now, Peter here is going to back up what he just said, and he's going to quote Psalms 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, and there's our title, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As I said, he's quoting Psalm 34, verses 11 16. Now, why does he do that? Why would he reach out and bring in an Old Testament scripture? Well, remember, he's writing a letter, and he's asking people, don't retaliate, don't do it physically, and don't do it verbally. And people are probably reading this letter, and they're saying, man, you got to be kidding me. That this He can't mean this, right? I mean, we, we, he, we should be able to defend ourselves. And so I think just in case you're not inclined to, because he knows he's asking a hard thing, just in case you're inclined not to listen to him, he's saying, look here, this is what it says in the Word of God. So he's validating his words, but with Old Testament uh, Scripture. Now, finally, Peter wants to give us an incentive. He's called us to be the right kind of person. He's called us to respond to others in relationships a particular kind of way. Now he wants to finish with an incentive. Now remember, he's just said, whoever desires to love life and see good days. Read what he says. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit, turn away from evil, and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, the first thing that Peter does is he says, these are things you need to eliminate from your life. Don't be speaking evil. Don't be speaking deceitful or misleading things. Turn away from evil. Now, I want you to notice something that's implied here. What's implicit here is that we have a natural bent toward evil. See, he asked, that's the thing we have to turn away from because naturally that's where we're going. Our natural bent is to do that. You see, we naturally just live for ourselves. This selfishness and pride that's just inherent in our, in our flesh. And the new birth doesn't eradicate that. Again, go read Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7. We are still in this flesh. Um, we've been, we've died to sin. That means we've been separated or, or it has no, uh, the tendrils aren't in us. It doesn't have complete control. Now it has to tempt us. It has to kind of try and deceive us. But now we have a real choice. But the choice is ours. But the temptation is still there. Let me let me show you how easy this is to see. Let's say one morning, you're, we've all been here. You're in, the, you're in your car. You're driving to work or driving somewhere. And you got your worship music on. You're feeling good. And everything's all right with the world. And some guy cuts you off, right? And you tell me how do you instinctively respond. Did you instinctively respond with a blessing or did you call him names? 
See, we instinct that, that selfishness, that pride. The, the reason we respond that way, it's the same reason a toddler throws a tantrum because we didn't get our way. Everything didn't, didn't flow the way we were going. And when we get upset, we don't respond with a blessing. That's not instinctive. That's a choice that we have to make. You see, the barrier to the good life is always self. The, the root of most of our relational problems, the vast majority of our relational problems, is selfishness. And we have to make a conscious decision to turn away from that on a daily basis. But what I want you to see here is, Peter, it's not enough just to turn away from evil. It's not enough just to deny self. We've got to add positive things. Paul uh, puts it, he, he tells us this way, take off certain things and put on certain things. Take off the, the negative, evil things and put on these other things. And what Peter says is do good, seek peace, and pursue it. Now, I looked up that word pursue. It's the Greek word Diaxado, or however you say that, but it means to hunt. And I just thought that was incredibly cool. You see, I think we think sometimes, I'm going to sit here and these situations happen to me, and I'm going to react to them. See, that word, you don't, it's not saying react, it's saying go look for it. Go hunt peace. Go pursue peace. Go out of your way. Go to, go to fight, go look for situations where you can make peace. And I think that's incredibly different from waiting until situations overwhelm you and trying to fight your way through it. He's saying, go out and hunt for it. He closes, as I said, with one final incentive. Verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. The incentive here is God is watching. Now, I remember as a kid, you know, we'd sing songs like, uh, You Better Watch Out. You better not pout. You better not cry. You know, Santa Claus, is he's, he's keeping an eye. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. And the idea is when we think somebody's watching, it creates a, a level of accountability, but it also creates a fear. Um, and that's true. When we say God is watching somebody, that's the first thing that maybe comes to our mind. But that's not Peter's point. In fact, that's not Peter's point at all. He's not trying to create fear. He's trying to create confidence. Look at what he said. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. See, the idea here is God is watching His people not to punish them. He's watching them so that He can respond to their prayer when they need Him. See, what Peter is saying basically is saying, look, you, you can live like this. You don't have to retaliate physically. You don't have to retaliate verbally. You can be the person that does the right thing and you can live like that because whatever you get into, you always know God's got your back. When you're that kind of person and you're doing good and seeking peace, God's got your back. All you have to do is call out to Him. If You, you may need wisdom. You may, may need power. You, whatever you need in that situation, you call out to Him and He's ready to hear your prayer. Now, He does say this at the end of that verse, "...but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." You might notice the switch in phrasing. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The eyes of the Lord in the Bible always indicate uh, watchfulness or omniscient, the idea that God knows what's going on. face of the Lord always refers to judgment, and that is what awaits those who do uh, evil. One final thought as I close. Do you want to live the good life? Do you really want to live the good life? You see, in the end, the good life is not about stuff. 
It's not about having things and toys and money. And it's not even about circumstances. I mean, we're all going to go through different circumstances. We're all going to go through grievous trials. It's not about that at all. The good life is always about relationships. It's always about relationships. This is what this whole section from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way here to uh, chapter 3, verse 12, it's all about people. And it's all about our relationships. I know of no other scripture in the Bible that would do more good for our relationships and our families, our relationships and our church than the one that we've studied today. So I put a challenge out there for you. Will you take whatever steps are necessary to apply these verses to the relationships in your life? Let's pray. Father, as always, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we want to be a people who live the good life who love the good life. But Father, first of all, make sure we understand what the good life is. It's not about stuff. It's not about all the circumstances being perfect. It's living a life where our relationships are correct in your eyes. First of all, our relationship with you, our relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, but the relationship with those around us as well. God, help us to be a people that doesn't have to put on an act but a certain kind of people, a people with unity of mind, a people that are sympathetic, a people that are, that are humble, a people that are tender-hearted. Let us be those kind of people because out of that kind of person, certain actions are just going to flow forth. We thank you, Lord, again for your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit will not let this word go void, but it will apply, he will apply it to our hearts and our lives. And turn us into those people if we'll just ask Him. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.